This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then James Thornton, who is founding CEO of Climate Earth, joined me to talk about his new book of the same title, Climate Earth. And James shared his story from US litigator to UK solicitor representing the most important client of all, the Earth. Then finally, I had actors Gareth Davies and Imogen Sage join me in the studio to talk about the Melbourne Theatre Company's production of Noel Coward's play, Hay Fever. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy. I have with me now National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, Ben Eltham, and he is in the studio. Hi, Ben. Hey, good morning, Amy. Morning. morning. How's life? Yeah, life's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah enjoying the sunshine. Decent. Yeah. yeah. I know, I'm, I'm hitting my threshold at the moment with the heat, but uh, that may be no surprise <laughs> yeah. to anyone who's seen how pale I am. Yeah, that's it's, not good for October. No, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm so good. passionate about climate change. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Reducing our, uh, our increase in temperature. Uh, and that's an excellent segue into energy policy and climate change, Ben, because the two are now intrinsically linked and can't be discussed separately. Uh, and we have committed to a Paris climate agreement um, and we're supposed to be ensuring that our energy policy does achieve that. Uh, the coalition government, federal government, is slated to announce their energy policy today and we've heard uh, Julie Bishop uh, on the radio this morning talking broadly about it and how it's really about reliability and affordability whilst keeping in mind our emissions reduction target. Ben, we had a Finkel review... Uh, Alan Finkel, chief scientist, he delivered what he thought was the right policy. Uh, The government appears to have been completely decided to ignore what Alan Finkel uh, has put forward and do something of the opposite. What is going on? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, So, yeah, we had the Finkel review into energy security, remember? Uh, The government has decided to ignore it. So it uh, junked the clean energy target that Alan Finkel recommended there will now not be a clean energy target and the government is pressing ahead with its own policy, which we still don't have the details about yet, but we're hoping to find out today. What we do know is that the government will create some kind of National Energy Security Council um, and it will uh, mandate the retailers uh, to have a certain amount of dispatchable power as part of their energy makeup. So some of this is kind of... um, cribbing a little bit from what Finkel recommended, but I think most importantly, there will be no commitment to uh, a clean energy quota, if you like. So there'll be no formal government policy on the amount of renewable energy in the grid. The government is saying that it will be able to meet our Paris emissions reductions targets, however, but how we're going to do that remains to be seen. Yes, and also there will be apparently no renewable energy subsidies. Uh, So that is something of which means, uh, you know, that area is less likely to be stimulated. And by having a clean energy target, that is supposed to provide some level of industry confidence to invest in renewable energy 
because as we know, uh, over the last at least five years, it's been fraught uh, in terms of the industry having any confidence to know what the energy policy of the day will be at any given point in the year and whether they can make decisions two to three years out that are going to be, you know, highly expensive. Yeah, absolutely. So you'd have to say this is the continuation of the energy wars that have crippled Australia's energy grid over the last seven years, really since 2009 when Tony Abbott took up the Liberal leadership. We've never had bipartisanship on energy policy since that point. And you'd have to say we're not going to have bipartisanship here because Labor, of course, has a 50% energy reduction, oh, sorry, emissions reduction target. And Labor is obviously very keen on renewable energy. So on those two points, I would think that the Labor Party and the coalition are very far apart. Um, you're right, there is going to be no renewable energy target after 2020 under this plan. So when the current plan... RET, the RET runs out, there'll be no further stimulus or subsidy to renewable energy. Now, people have argued that renewable energy is now the cheapest form of energy, so why do we need to subsidise it? And that may well be the case, but that doesn't solve the other side of the problem, which is long-term certainty, which is what the hell are we going to do in the long term to keep our energy market secure uh, and to keep power prices down? Now, the government is talking a lot about electricity prices and how they're going to get it get them down. Um, that's kind of ironic considering that energy prices are now at their highest level for decades under this government. And that's a direct cause really of Tony Abbott's policies of junking Labor's clean energy policies in 2013 and replacing them with nothing. Mm. Um, and you'd have to say this plan, I mean, we, we need the details obviously, but this plan is not going to solve that problem because what we need is a 20, 30 year timetable that's what the Finkel plan gave us. It gave us that kind of long-term timetable that would keep, that would give us a schedule for how we were going to address these issues in the long term. This plan is not that. No, it's very ad hoc and it suggests <coughs> that... Uh, well, particularly coal is still the solution in terms of uh, security and reliability, which, you know, many people could certainly debate that proposal, as well as gas and suggesting that uh, we need to now be fracking and putting pressure on the states to take uh, away their bans, particularly New South Wales and Victoria's ban on onshore uh, land fracking. So this is a, a real issue and particularly... Um, the suggestion that uh, that potentially any company that will decide to close a power plant or, um, you know, take away a coal-fired energy will need to provide a three-year uh, warning of that of that timetable. I mean, do you think that this is kind of the Liberal Party and and the National Party intervening where it possibly shouldn't? Well, I mean, they're obviously intervening in the market. They've been intervening in the market for some time now. Uh, they this told, is the Turnbull government, yeah, <laughs> intervention in the market. Absolutely. I mean, they told AGL that they weren't allowed to shut the little coal plant, which they'd given six years notice about. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see how the three-year notice is going to change too much. Um, the, the big problem for coal is not so much that... Um, you know, that the government is intervening in the market. The big problem for coal is that most of these coal plants are reaching the end of their productive lives. So you can't necessarily keep them open forever. Uh, a lot of them have, you know, major technical problems, need hundreds of millions of dollars spent on them to keep them running. 
is that economically viable for those operators? Well, in the case of AGL, they've decided no. And, you know, further on the on the electricity front, you know, we know what the big problem is in terms of electricity prices. In fact, the ACCC told us yesterday, again, it's the poles and wires, it's the network costs, it's the structure of the national electricity market, which enables the companies that own those poles and wires, like SP Osnet, for example, the company that gave us Black Saturday, to charge consumers whatever they like for that infrastructure. So the market is broken, the national electricity market needs fundamental reform. And until the government, any government, commits to reform that market in the interests of consumers and in the interests of the environment, environment when until that time we're still going to have a broken market and we're still going to have very high prices yes exactly the joys of privatization <laughs> yeah indeed and uh, and also this particular scheme uh julie bishop mentioned has been recommended by the australian energy market operator and the new energy security board uh so they're almost suggesting that uh, these regulators are better placed than our chief scientist, Alan Finkel, to be able to deliver uh, the necessary guidance and reforms. Perhaps do you think the public service might have a role to play in policy development or even politicians to use their own uh, mental capacity to come up with ideas? I mean, I don't really care who develops the policy as long as the policy is good policy. Um, It remains to be seen whether this is good policy. We'll need to look at the details and we'll need to get the energy experts to tell us what they think. But we've already noticed one glaring problem with it, which is that it clearly doesn't commit Australia to big enough energy and emissions reductions, okay? So the energy sector's got to play a much bigger role than the rest of the economy in terms of getting Australia's carbon emissions down. This plan won't do that. It it won't commit Australia to the level of emissions reductions consistent with the Paris Accords. In fact, the Finkel Review clean energy target did not commit us to the, um, the right amount of energy of emissions reductions so this plan which is weaker than the finkel review will do less so i mean right there that's a major problem um and and then that's before we even get into the technical issues of the structure of the nem and things like that indeed uh it seems like it'll remain a political football for the time being but uh, it's very revealing that it's mainly being couched as about electricity prices rather than anything else yeah it's one of those funny things where you know the government wants to try and bang the drama on electricity prices and attack the opposition about electricity prices because it's worked for them politically in the past. The problem is electricity prices are very high right now. The government's been in for four years. Whose fault is it? Mm. You know, it, yes, it's a, a long-term failure of Australian policy going back a decade, but the the party primarily responsible for that failure is the coalition. I mean, if you transport yourself in a time machine back to 2007, at the 2007 federal election, both John Howard and Kevin Rudd went into that election promising an emissions trading scheme. So we had bipartisan support for some kind of sensible energy policy. That was abandoned by Tony Abbott in 2009. And of course, in 2013, the Abbott government got rid of all of Labor's energy policies. And that that is really the cause of the current crisis because there's all the underinvestment that has happened in energy. Remember, we had a, a, a renewable energy target for 41,000 gigawatt hours that was in place before the Abbott government reduced it. So there would have been much more renewable energy coming onto the grid in the future years if they hadn't reduced the RET. 
And now they're talking about getting rid of the RET altogether and having no replacement to drive renewable energy investment. And yet, renewable energy is the cheapest form of new energy. So, I mean, this just shows the bankruptcy of the coalition's energy policies, I think, over a long period of time. I mean, far from picking winners, as the economists like to criticise, I mean, this is picking losers. Mm, It is. And we've seen Tony Abbott uh, come out and warn uh, cabinet members that this policy needs to pass the party room and it will be going to the party room today. And his uh, main point about the warning is that should there be any mention of clean energy or renewable energy targets and subsidies, then, well, that's unlikely to pass. So isn't he really driving this agenda? Yes, he is. And the right wing of the Liberal Party has also driven this agenda. And you can see that by the fact that the government's taken so long to respond to the Finkel review and so long to craft a compromise that I'm sure will pass the coalition party room this morning because they've thrashed it out in the back rooms over the last few months, really, to come up with a plan, not that it's the best plan for Australia, but is the plan that is able to pass the the Liberal backbench. Mm. Um, And that tells you all you need to know about the way policy is being made in the Turnbull government, unfortunately. I'll just make one further point on the subsidy issue. You know, they talk about, all oh, subsidies for renewable energy, isn't that terrible? That, of course, ignores the biggest subsidy of all, which goes to fossil fuels, which get to pollute the planet for free. That's quite a subsidy. It is a subsidy. So is investment in Adani, uh, Carmichael coal mine and uh, a railway. Yeah, absolutely. If that goes ahead, that will be a $900 million subsidy uh, to fossil fuel. Of course, we don't know if that's happening yet, but um, we do know that the Adani-Carmichael issue is hotting up. Uh, Richard Di Natale has said he's going to go stand in front of bulldozers if the mine goes ahead, and I actually think it will be a major, major environmental protest if they try and go ahead with that mine. I, I don't think anyone realises just how passionately people think, uh, feel about this mine, and, and I think it will be the biggest thing since the Franklin protests of 1983. Mm. Well, let's make sure that people do voice their opinions because I know energy policy doesn't sound that great, but it's uh, really threatening all of our lives, including the Earth's. Well, it's maybe not that interesting on in the abstract level, except for the fact that, yeah, it's the future of the planet. Mm pretty important. Now, let's move to uh, humans for a minute here uh, and the human rights record of Australia. We just overnight in New York have been voted onto uh, the UN's Human Rights uh, Council and I think it was about 174 votes in favour of Australia uh, and I think when we got onto the Security Council it was around 140. So, uh, apparently we've done well in that area despite our um, blight on our record around asylum seekers and Indigenous incarceration rates. Ben, uh, what does this mean? Oh, the irony. Uh, yeah, it's it's something of a, a tremendous irony, you would argue, that Australia, who's done probably more than any other industrialised, advanced country to chip away at, at the world's human rights records. I mean, I mean, look, let's not get too carried away. I mean, Australia still has a, a free media and, and reasonable rule of law and civil protections for ordinary citizens, but... We do like to jail innocent refugees in foreign hellholes. Um, that's not great. We have 
a very, very significant program of legal government surveillance. Uh, that's not great either. Uh, we have an incredibly dubious track record when it comes to the treatment of Australia's First Nations and peoples. That's not great either. So people are definitely going to be asking, you know, why is Australia on this committee and what, uh, what of our own human rights record before we start lecturing other nations on theirs? Yes, and one of the arguments that Foreign Affairs <coughs> Minister Julie Bishop uh, put forward was that the people, or oh, sorry, the countries on this council will be open to a great deal of transparency and, and critique, not only us, but others with, as she might suggest, possibly worse uh, track records. Um, so, you know, that's, a, I'm not quite sure if that's quite a convincing argument, but uh, it will be interesting to see whether we prov- we provide any kind of scrutiny on anyone else. Uh, well, if Julie Bishop wants more scrutiny, then she should perhaps open up some scrutiny on Australia's immigration policies mm. because it's been very hard for journalists to report on Nauru and Manus Island. Even visit there, let alone report on them. Indeed, indeed. So yeah. perhaps that's one area of scrutiny that Julie Bishop could press her Cabinet colleague, Peter Dutton, to <laughs> move on right away. Yes, and when are we... Uh, going to get that nice renamed portfolio for Dutton. Oh, isn't it, isn't it happening? It's happened know. already, hasn't I it? I thought he was still immigration. Right. Because we, we were going to home affairs. I thought we were having... Yeah. I thought, yeah, no, it hasn't quite happened yet. I no, guess it's got to be... need to update the website and have a new logo or Oh, all that. That's very important, new logos. Yeah. Um, there's probably some kind of Governor-General thing that has to happen when you probably. rename the portfolio because it's, you know, constitutional and such. He's uh, Minister of the Crown, that yeah. kind of thing. I'm not very good on machinery of government, Amy. It's a, a no. very complex black box, <laughs> <laughs> the MOG, as they call it in Canberra. I believe, though, that the Secretary has been appointed. It was, um, was it Pesuto? Oh, yes, Commandant Pizzullo. Yes. yes, he gave a major speech in Canberra this week, apparently. Um, he has to be the scariest guy in Canberra, in my opinion. And I mean, like a, a career bureaucrat who's risen up the ranks to now command this super department. Mm. Um, yeah, very, very concerning fellow. I mean, I think just has way too much power for uh, a non-elected bureaucrat. Um, and the, uh, the development of the immigration department into this kind of super super department with its own paramilitary police force. I think that is a worrying precedent for a less free Australia. Should an unscrupulous government take power in this country, then there's plenty of machinery of repression ready to go there. Mm, there is. And uh, and there's also concerns about uh, the reforms that were pretty much approved at COAG, uh, the, the meeting of the states and federal government just a week ago. Oh, the national face panopticon. Mm. Yeah, we didn't get to mention that last week. But uh, yes, that's, that's going through. So all of people's driver's licenses will now be linked up in a national database and fed into the CCTV cameras. So basically um, the all-seeing eyes in the sky will be able to clock your face on a camera and probably match it to a national face database. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds free. Not very worrying at all. Not at all. (laughs) 
Good times. And let's talk finally about Bruce Bilson, who was the former federal small business minister. Uh, he is um, from Victoria and he, before he left parliament, was being paid a $75,000 a year salary from the Franchise Council of Australia. And uh, for anyone who can't remember, he left parliament in 2016 and he had been removed from cabinet by uh, uh, Turnbull when uh, he took over from Abbott. Now, uh, there was an investigation into this to see whether he was going to be uh, found to be doing something a bit, you know, naughty, contrary to the rules. What happened there? There's actually two investigations ongoing. One was by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and one is ongoing by the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, Yes, I mean, this is an outrageous example of, I think, just why we need an anti-corruption body um, federally because Bilson was the Minister for Small Business until September 2015 and he was an MP until June 2016, but he took up a paid role as a lobbyist for the Franchise Council in March 2016 while he was still an MP and only six months after being the Minister for Small Business, the Franchise Council obviously being Mm. a bunch of small businesses. Uh, So um, the rules say that if you're a minister, you're not allowed to be a lobbyist for 18 months after leaving the ministry. So this to me is an open and shut case. But lo and behold, after having a look at it, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet has said, it's all good, nothing to see here. And I think this just shows like how weak the standards are federally. And it's a really worrying precedent because obviously he's broken the rules. And if mm. we can't even get the the so-called gatekeepers to agree that he's broken the rules, then the rules obviously mean nothing. Yes, and it's the Prime Minister and Cabinet Secretary Martin <laughs> Parkinson who is the one uh, to rule on whether he breached ministerial standards in the lobbying code of conduct. So it's also involving the public service in a matter that is very political. Yeah, it is. It is, and, and that's why we need an independent corruption watchdog. You know, rather than putting the the top bureaucrat of the public service on the spot to make these kind of decisions, uh, you know, he serves at the pleasure of the prime minister. Obviously, in the end, and and so a conflict of interest for him. Arguably, of course, his highest interest is to the Australian people, and I think he's made the wrong call here. But the bigger problem is there's just no accountability for our federal parliamentarians. Mm. Uh, You know, like, Bilson was actually being paid by the Franchise Council while he was being paid by the taxpayer to be a member of parliament. Now, in many other jurisdictions, that is simply corruption. And the fact that this kind of thing is not caught by the rules in Australia just shows how weak the rules are. We desperately need reform on this issue. It's just it's just not good enough, I'd argue. Yeah, and uh, and his explanation was uh, that he told the ABC he had made a, quote, administrative failing by not disclosing his job. Uh, so that also doesn't really seem like an adequate response. I mean, the Franchise Council put out a media release in March 2016 while he was still an MP, you know. I mean, it's just... In the public domain. It's just, it's still up there. You can still go to their website (laughs) and have a look at it, you know. So this is just blatant. Yeah. And, you know, we wonder why ordinary citizens hold our politicians in contempt. It's this kind of stuff. It's this stuff that makes people contemptuous of our political system. And you did mention there's another ongoing investigation by the Parliamentary Privileges Committee to see if he should be found in contempt of Parliament uh, because they can, MPs can 
be do, uh, do so to be found in contempt if they fail to declare every source of income and uh, company directorships to register of interest. So, I mean, that is some area of um, possible oversight, but even then it's by uh, Bilson's peers. So it's not necessarily, again, independent. That's right. Again, it's the politicians uh, watching the other politicians. So there's not in, there's no independent oversight. It's not an independent statutory body with, you know, quasi-judicial or investigation, investigatory powers. It's just his colleagues, former friends on the backbench. And of course, he was quite a popular small business minister and, and parliamentarian. So, you know, again, just not good enough. I mean, look, obviously, prima facie, he's broken the rules here. If we want to look at the the payment, that's obviously... He's admitted that he was getting paid while being an MP. He was also appointed as the chair of the Franchising Council. So that's a company directorship, quite obviously. Didn't declare that. And what will happen if he falls foul of the Privileges Committee? Well, in theory, he could be criminally convicted, but I think we, we know that won't happen. He'll probably no. be given a slap over the wrist. And this is, happens time and time again. You know, remember Bromwyn Bishop? Bromwyn <laughs> Bishop. The helicopters. Yes. Gross abuses of her parliamentary travel entitlements faced no sanctions. You know, paid back the money, that's fine, no worries, nothing to see here anymore. Mm. And just to uh, give a little bit of an update, uh, I believe the High Court is still making its decision on the citizenship status or eligibility status of uh, the many (laughs) MPs and senators who uh, uh, have been deemed or look to be citizens, dual citizens, not only citizens of Australia, but citizens of Canada, Italy, uh, the UK. So that is still happening in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And that decision will obviously have big implications for the government and for the government's parliamentary majority. So we wait with considerable interest on Mm. that decision. And particularly looking at at Barnaby Joyce's seat uh, because apparently they've already been preparing in the background for uh, an election in that seat, a by-election, and there are a whole load of people lining up for uh, candidacy in that seat and even the Liberal Party has been preparing volunteers for booths. So it seems like uh, it could be a real uh, potential issue I mean, that will be a bit of a circus, certainly a by-election in New England if it yeah. happens. But and also Tony Windsor. I mean, Tony Windsor might throw his hat into the ring, but mm. I, I would still expect Barnaby Joyce to win a by-election in New England. I mean, I think his primary vote was in the 70s yeah. last election, so he's sitting on a very safe margin. He was, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Ben, for coming in to chat federal politics. Yeah, thanks, Amy. It's good to be back. It is. Have a lovely day. Thank you. That was National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, Ben Eltham. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRI-FM with Amy Mullins. I'm delighted now to have with me from London, and he joins me via Skype, James Thornton, who is the CEO and founder of Client Earth. And he's also the co-author of the same titled book. And uh, the other co-author there is Martin Goodman, who is his husband, and uh, I'd like to welcome James now. Hi, James. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. I was really intrigued by this concept of a public interest environmental law 
organisation and even just the idea of a public interest environmental lawyer. Because although we have environmental law and environmental lawyers here, your organisation, Client Earth, offers a very diverse suite of offerings and it really does cover the full chronology as you outline in the book from the beginning of identifying a problem through science down to enforcing laws. So I will get to that point in a moment, but I was interested in your pre-story or history before you got to this point and it's quite illuminating. So first of all, we were just mentioning off air that your background originally when you were educated at Yale was in philosophy and I was particularly interested interested in how your education in philosophy before you went on to study law in a postgraduate sense influences you still today um, and the way you think and the way uh, you perceive the world? Well, it's a, that's a good and deep question. And the, uh, I think the way it uh, influences me still is that uh, when you study philosophy, and I, w- I was studying the branch of philosophy uh, called epistemology, and what uh, you study there is the basically the question, how can you know anything? So uh, you are always examining how do I gain the evidence to make sense of the world? Who am I? What are my thoughts? Is the world real? Um, It sounds a bit esoteric, but it actually requires you to get very deeply into a skeptical and questioning uh, frame of mind and and analyzing everything that comes to you. And uh, that habit of analyzing everything and uh, of questioning everything is really what uh, I rely on in doing my sort of law because for me and for the lawyers who work with me, law isn't a passive thing where you just answer routine questions that people bring you, but instead it is a way of reconceiving how people relate to the world and what rules we should all be bound by and then how to make those rules work. Well, that is really interesting background. And as you just kind of referenced or uh, suggested, philosophy is such a diverse field in itself in the, in the types of questions you consider. And in terms of then moving on to your Juris Doctorate in law, you came from a law family. Well, your siblings are lawyers and as was your father. What led you to that point moving from philosophy? I can see there's definitely overlap in terms of the argumentative element that is in both, but what really was it that drove you to that? Well, um, and uh, yeah, I should say something about my dad and the dinner table because, uh, so I have three brothers, four boy family, and uh, we're all lawyers. And what happened around the dinner table is my, my father, my parents were wonderful, wonderful people. And uh, he was a law professor, and he taught by the Socratic method. And the Socratic method really is to ask questions, you know, uh, question after question after question. And, you know, I didn't realize until years later, looking back, that around the dinner table, he was training us all to be lawyers just because that's how he thought. And we would play games in which uh, the boys had to make the arguments. And, uh, you know, when arguments got really heated, he would start scoring them. And, uh, you know, you would, uh, if you got marked as having the best argument around the dinner table, you felt really proud. And uh, years and years later, I realized that, that all that training meant that I felt that I could walk uh, into uh, any room and hold my own in any argument. And that was, that was a wonderful gift to have gotten. And then I really went into philosophy, to step back into that, to understand the meaning of life. And I realized at a certain point, after studying philosophy for years, that it wasn't actually going to give me that. And then I thought, well, how do I then take care of life? And I had also fallen in love with biology. And as a boy, 
I really wanted to be a biologist. And I learned at a certain point when everyone started understanding that the environment was in peril, that I could spend the rest of my life studying wonderful creatures that were disappearing. And um, instead, by going into law, although there wasn't really much by way of environmental law then, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I thought I would get powerful tools. And let's give some historical context here, because when you were studying law at that time, I believe there wasn't a lot of environmental law in America, but also, as you say in the book, even in Europe, they were much further behind America from the 70s, 80s, 90s onwards. It seems like the US at least was leading the way in that time under Nixon, President Nixon. When you started law, what was the uh, environmental law situation or status? Yeah, well, thanks for the question again. You know, it's, um, it was interesting. The, uh, so the big environmental laws of the modern era really started in the U.S. Uh, during Nixon, as you mentioned. And in 1969, 70, 72, the big laws uh, were passed that are really the basis of environmental regulation there. And I uh, graduated from law school in 1979, so it was still just a few years in. And I went to a really good law school in New York, uh, New York University Law School, but there wasn't even an environmental law course there. So it was so new. And um, I, in my third year of law school, was uh, the editor-in-chief of the Law Review, and I was sitting in my office one day. And one of my colleagues came back and said, hey, James, I just went to this, or I've just finished this great clinical program, which means while a student you go and work with lawyers in some field, I've just finished this great clinical program at an environmental law group, public interest environmental law group called the NRDC. And you've probably never heard of them because they're new, but they do great work uh, to save the planet. They're really brilliant and they're particularly eccentric. So I think you'd fit right in. And I thought with that advertising line, I had to go and check them out. (laughs) And it was by, uh, uh, I started working with these folks and indeed they were wonderful. And their work was wholly dedicated to using the law to protect the planet. So I did things like working on with assisting them. But as just a student, I was working to save the oceans, save the fish, save forests. And that was where I got a taste of how you can use law uh, to save the environment. So this was a very pioneering group. It was only nine years old at that point, but still quite small. And just looking back at it uh, the other day with the people who founded that organization, I realized that in our 10th year at Client Earth now, um, we're just the same size as that great American organization was when it was 10 years old. So um, we have a little over 100 people, and we have offices in three uh, European countries, but also Beijing and New York. But we're about the same size as they were in their 10th year, and they've gone on to grow and grow and are uh, helping to lead the fight against what Trump is now doing in the United States because they're, although they were great leaders in coming up with environmental laws, at the moment, uh, the, the government is uh, trying to eliminate as many of them as it possibly can. And that's one of the things that environmental lawyers can then be very helpful with to try and prevent the good laws from being taken away. 
Indeed, and perhaps there are some similarities between what happened under Ronald Reagan's leadership and President Trump's because, as it says in the book, Congress set up the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA in 1970 and it was only about eight or nine years later that that Reagan requested or asked his new appointee and basically suggests that the EPA shouldn't seek to enforce the regulations and laws that protect the environment via litigation and that that would be frowned upon. And so certainly it looked like the EPA was significantly undermined in that period. Do you think there are echoes of that now? Well, yes, uh, there are certainly. And, uh, and your characterization is very accurate of what Reagan did. So he realized that he couldn't get rid of the environmental laws uh, entirely. And then so his tactic became to simply not enforce them and to tell industry that he wasn't going to enforce the laws. Uh, and they just assumed that they would get away with that. But there were these great provisions uh, in the American environmental laws that allowed citizens to come in and enforce the laws directly against polluting companies when the government wasn't doing it. So as a very young lawyer in my 20s, I went to this place uh, in D.C. where I had been a student and set up a a tiny project. It was just three of us. And uh, the idea was we would see if we could make up the difference. So uh, Reagan had stopped enforcing uh, the laws and we picked the Clean Water Act because it was one of the really important laws protecting the uh, water bodies, primarily rivers and lakes and estuaries. And uh, so you had industrial facilities discharging uh, waste, including hazardous chemicals in these uh, water bodies. And under the law, the Department of Justice had been bringing about 300 cases a year across the country to enforce this law, which creates a compliance uh, culture in which the companies know that they may be caught and they may be prosecuted. That in the Reagan administration's second year, went from over 300 cases a year to zero. So I picked that law, and uh, within six months, we had filed 60 cases, uh, you know, that I did. And then I won all those cases, and we went on then to bring a great many more cases, well over 100. And we won all of those cases. And the result was that companies got the message that they were having somebody look at them. Indeed, the biggest steel company in the world at that point was called Bethlehem Steel, heavily polluting. And I brought a case, and after several years in court, uh, we reached a settlement in which they paid what was in those years a very big penalty. And a senior vice president, as we signed the settlement, said to me, son, uh, he was much older than I was, son, we never thought that when the government told us it was okay to go ahead, that citizens like you would be out there watching us and could do something about it. So it was it was astounding. It was really, it was so corrupt and so clear. And... The result of all of our cases, though, was that we embarrassed the government had been doing his job again. I was called in by uh, a new man that was put in to run the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, I thought I was going to have lunch with him. And I was uh, I was a very young person in my 20s, and I thought, wow, this is a big deal. I'm going to go have lunch with the head of the EPA. What is he going to talk about? Instead, I got there and um, I was ushered into a conference room with well over 100 environmental lawyers working for the government. And uh, he was on a dais and I was on a platform. And he said, Mr. Thornton, while you're having your sandwich, could you give us a seminar on how to bring good environmental cases? Because you're the only one doing it in the country and we seem to have forgotten while you're still carrying the torch. So amazingly, I then gave a seminar to the government lawyers 
on how to find good environmental cases, how to bring them and how to win them. And they started doing it again. So what I learned from that is that it's possible for a very small group of people uh, using the law, knowing what they were doing and working damn hard to actually make a, a huge difference. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that uh, when you were leading the Citizens Enforcement Project under that group that was set up, as you said, the Natural Resources Defence Council, that it was really driven by such a small amount of people, but there was a huge workload. And in the book, it describes that those who you were looking into would provide so much evidence that you would often get somewhat buried under them, but then utilise it to your own advantage. But clearly, you know, (laughs) you need to dedicate a great deal of your own personal time to something like that and that as you realize it's not going to be sustainable to do that on a long-term basis hence the move to this kind of model that you've created under client earth which seeks to make it more sustainable and as you say look at it from more of an ecosystems perspective rather than individual cases of enforcement though i'm sure that does also come up Yes, well, uh, you still need to bring the cases, certainly. But what, what we're doing is, I'll tell you about some of the cases we've brought, because you know, a good fight is always exciting when you win. <laughs> um, but uh, and litigation is fun uh, if you're on the good guy's side. But the, uh, the way we approach it is that we look at the, what I call the whole life cycle of law. You start by having a problem you want to address, like climate change or uh, protecting the fisheries so that there are enough fish in the sea 100 years from now. And then once you determine what sort of problem you want to look at, then you study the science. Because the way I look at it, um, the earth and everyone who lives on her really are our clients. So you're my client, you're our client, and the ecosystems. And if the earth is your client, you know how do you speak to her? Because uh, a lawyer needs to speak to their client. And the way I understand the science is how the earth speaks to us. So in the grammar of science that the earth speaks. So you really need to study the science. Sorry, I just wanted to interject because often we might forget that um, traditionally in law, and as you bring up in the book, it's the client who's bringing the case to you. You're not instigating a case just off your own bat generally as a lawyer. And so in that sense, your communication with the earth is extremely important. Well, that's right. And um, you're right to focus on the uh, also the, the different attitude of the public interest lawyers. So we're a charity, so we have to go and raise all of our money and we pay ourselves charity wages. But what that does is it gives us the freedom to be strategic and to say, uh, how can we use law in order to help solve uh, these big environmental questions? So the strategy is yours to develop in order to protect the client, uh, which is the earth and everybody who lives on it. And therefore, you turn to the science and you say, what is the science telling us? So one example would be when I was setting up client earth, I saw that in terms of climate change, the scientists were saying the public enemy number one is coal and the use of coal in generating electricity, coal-fired power stations. And what we need to do is to move away from coal, particularly in, for electricity, and build clean power. So I said, okay, that's, uh, the science is very, very, very clear on that. And then because there were a lot of new coal-fired power stations being built in Europe, uh, I went directly to litigation and we've stopped a whole generation of coal-fired power stations in the UK and in Poland. So that can be quite effective. You just raised a, a very hot topic here at the moment with the Adani Carmichael coal mine, which I know you've commented on in a previous interview. And 
Australia is still relying a lot on our exports to other countries for coal. Yeah, and um, it's a shame to see it, and it's a, it's a very very bad direction that the uh, that the government uh, there is, is pursuing. So much are they uh, not acting in the public interest that they're uh, spending something like a billion in order to build the rail track from the Adani mine to the coast, which is uh, nonsense. The Adani mine really on its own can't compete in the market. So it, if it's going to be built, it will rely on these enormous public subsidies. And just imagine that. So the taxpayers are spending uh, enormous sums, a billion for the rail track alone, in order to create this mine, which can't pay for itself, but which will contribute uh, more global carbon pollution than most other things in the world. It makes absolutely no sense. And the shame is seeing that such a uh, such a smart first world country as Australia, and I was just there, we were just there for about a month, and you know, we totally fell in love with Australia, how can you not? <laughs> and then you see everything that you need to protect and you need to help. And uh, the idea then of... Uh, relying on this very ancient coal-burning technology, which will help destroy uh, Australia, despite what people like Mr. Abbott say. Uh, it just makes no sense. Uh, Australia also is one of the sunniest places in the world and could easily be leading the, the world in uh, clean tech. Um, you know, you could be generating enormous amounts of energy uh, with solar power. Uh, you could be producing hydrogen that you can press and sell uh, on the market. And it would be endless. All it takes is imagination. It does. And uh, we've also undermined the CSIRO, which is our government-funded science and innovation organisation. So I think that's also a problem as well. It's part of a broader conservative agenda in terms of the approach to climate change here. But it would be helpful if we had people like those who work at Client Earth. Are you working at all in the space in Australia? Well, I hope we can help there. Uh, there are some really good environmental lawyers, as you mentioned at the beginning of our talk uh, in Australia at yeah. uh, the Environmental Defenders yeah. Office, um, but there aren't, <clears throat> there aren't enough of them. And uh, they do bring good cases, and indeed they've been challenging the, uh, the Adani mine. But uh, to go back to how we work, so we start with science and then we develop policy. Uh, we work with all kinds of groups, uh, to, with industry, with government, with other environmental organizations, scientists, to develop policy. Uh, say again, to stop climate change or protect fisheries. And then once the policy is in place to show what the direction should be, then we uh, work in the parliaments to help write the law. And we've been writing lots of laws in uh, in Brussels, which writes uh, laws, the European Parliament for all of Europe, and then also in different member states like Poland and the UK and so on. And then once you have the law in place, then you work to implement the law, so to make the law work, because you can write a law uh, but then if the only people who are arguing with the government about how it should be implemented uh, is industry, what will happen is the law gets interpreted by the government in favor of industry because there's nobody on the other side and the voice of industry is very powerful. So we spend a lot of time also working to make sure that good laws are then properly implemented and finally enforced. And that's where you get to the excitement of cases. So if you have a, um, if you have a good law, that is being ignored, then you simply need to to go and enforce it. And uh, in Europe, we've been bringing a series of air quality cases because the governments have uh, refused to uh, comply with the air quality law. And across Europe, um, the European Commission uh, says that there are about 400,000 people a year who die early of air pollution. And in the UK, where our headquarters is, it's uh, over 40,000 a year. 
really unacceptable. And we're using litigation to uh, to stop that. And, and we're winning. But to go back to your question about Australia, yeah, we have one lawyer now uh, working in Australia for some months. And she, uh, as I did when I was there, uh, is meeting with uh, lots of uh, Australian environmental organizations, with uh, politicians uh, who are interested in protecting the environment. And we'll see. I hope we can help there and make a, make a contribution. I just got a lovely email this morning from Christine Milner, who is the former head of the Green Party. And, uh, you know, we, we spent uh, hours together discussing our visions of how to make a cleaner, healthier society when we were there. And she hosted a book event for us for our client earth book uh, in Hobart. So I feel like in just a few weeks in Australia, we made a lot of friends. And I feel very strongly that we need to try and do something to help Well, that's good to hear because I know you would have a lot of friends, certainly in our community, even uh, at Triple R and beyond in Melbourne. There are so many people passionate about the environment, but often feeling like they don't know what to do except, you know, sign a petition or voice their concern to their local member of parliament. And this is really a whole other element that often isn't pursued by citizens in particular or even by environmental lawyers because of that obviously that funding issue is huge in your in America the process of bringing litigation was different and then when you moved to the UK there was a significant lack of agency for individuals or not for profits to be able to bring cases forward against governments or organizations that were potentially in breach of an environmental law and I know you played an important role in making it more accessible for people to do that and that you also had certain decisions to make in terms of your role as a lawyer in the UK? Mm. Well, I guess the first one was uh, I decided I had to become uh, a UK lawyer and requalify here. And that was a fascinating process um, because it allowed me to have an intimate look at the UK legal system. Uh, I thought I needed, if I was going to work in the EU, to be uh, to become familiar with and really know the inside of at least one legal system and then be able to move out from that to study others. So that was a, a laborious process of becoming a UK lawyer. But, but I did that. And then what, what, what did surprise me, you know, I naively moved to the uh, EU as, as an American thinking, oh, Europe is so sophisticated. There are going to be lots of environmental lawyers uh, doing the kind of work I do. And courts will welcome citizens to come through their doors to defend the environment. Well, I was surprised to find out that there weren't really any environmental lawyers doing this kind of work in Europe, which then allowed planet Earth to happen. But also uh, in the UK, um, in particular, but other places too, it could be very difficult to get into court to fight for environmental rights. And in the UK, the reason was the rules around costs. And this applies in many uh, instances in Australia as well. That's one of the unfortunate heritages uh, from uh, the UK. Well, if you go into court and you sue somebody and you lose, you pay all of their costs and fees uh, is the general rule. And uh, in the UK, commercial lawyers are enormously expensive, so that can be a crippling cost. And as a result, even really well-funded organizations weren't bringing uh, cases. So one of the first things we did was to work on changing that rule, which has been somewhat successful, although the government is pushing back and once again trying to make it harder. Now, the interesting thing on access to justice is uh, for the environment is the most uh, exciting uh, new opportunity in this regard is in China. You know, I was welcomed into China in 2014 or invited in. The uh, Chinese had just passed a new law that would allow 
uh, as of 2015, Chinese environmental organizations to bring cases against polluting companies, just like I was doing during the Reagan administration in the U.S. And um, the Supreme Court of China is the entity then that writes all the detailed rules about how to make the law work, who can bring cases and what you have to pay to the other side if you lose and what the rules of evidence are and all of those very important things. And uh, they invited me in to uh, advise them on that. And, uh, and I did. And uh, in my first meeting with them at a seminar I was giving, I said, wow, this is really revolutionary what you're doing. And they said, hmm, revolution is a big word for us here, <laughs> which was delightful. But, uh, but indeed, it was a huge change. And then I was able to help them write very good rules so that in China now, you have greater access to justice uh, to sue a polluting company than you do in the UK. And, you know, if you lose, you pay nothing to the other side because they consider that the environmental group is doing a public service, which indeed they are. So we've seen now, just in the last year or so, a year and a half that the law has been in place, that even though the Chinese environmental NGOs are very new, and there aren't many of them, and they don't have anything like the money that they do in the West, nevertheless, they've brought something like 70 cases, uh, and they're winning them. And prosecutors are also now bringing environmental cases under the same law on behalf of the people. And they've brought several thousand. So you have a revolution going on there now, if they would let me use that word, a sea change, let's say, in which having made the decision to clean up the environment, which they know is in terrible shape, they're really pursuing it. And they are eager to create a compliance culture in which companies know for the first time that they won't get away with violating environmental regulations. And what's exciting is that citizen groups are going to play a, a real part in this so that they'll be empowered. They are now empowered to bring cases and they're doing it. And again, I, I really want to help them because there's so much to do. Well, it seems like almost the ideal to be able to come in and start from scratch really about what rules you're going to create for such a mechanism. And it's interesting. I wonder if that is really quite well suited to the Chinese in terms of uh, its focus on making sure that everyone is taken care of, which is still you know, part of the communist philosophy. Yes. And um, what uh, the officials are, are very aware of is that they not only need to clean up the environment, but they need to be uh, seen to be cleaning up the environment because people are so very, very upset about it, and certainly correctly so. So that by empowering uh, citizens' groups to bring cases, they're really empowering citizens to get involved. And then uh, they make it as easy as possible with the court rules and the, uh, the rules on fees. So they've really opened the door as much as they possibly can. And they're also aware that the corruption is a big problem, particularly the further away you get from Beijing, uh, the harder it is for the central government to control things. And it has always been thus, you know, when you read Chinese history, but it's certainly still that way today. So their feeling is that by allowing citizens to bring cases, that a lot of cases will be brought <clears throat> that otherwise just would never happen. And back to my experience in the Reagan administration, when the big steel company says, we, we just didn't think citizens were watching. Now we know differently. I hope that same thing happens uh, in China, where companies that felt like they could get away with things will realize that citizens are not just watching, but they can actually do something now and they can go to court and achieve huge penalties against the companies and court orders to clean up. So what's interesting is that, and one of the things we explore in the book, is that this attitude towards cleaning up the environment emerged really strongly in the U.S. during the Nixon years, 
uh, in the 70s, and then in Europe about 10 years later, in the 80s, when they passed uh, very good laws uh, here in Europe. And in America now, we're seeing a backlash. In Europe, there's also something of a backlash as well. People are trying to slow it down now. Uh, but in China, they've had this real enlightenment about the need to clean up because the situation is so bad. And uh, they're doing everything they can, and they're going around the world, and it's not just me, but experts from all over the world, uh, and including from Australia, many are being invited into China to advise and to try and help them how to design a system that uh, delivers results. They, they even have a notion that they call building an ecological civilization. And uh, it's not just a slogan. They've actually, with this concept of ecological civilization, they've broken it down into eight components, which include things like building a new economics, building a new agricultural policy, a new industrial policy, revising our legal system. And I've been advising them on that legal system part. But they've put hundreds of their best intellectuals on this project of how do we redesign things so that society really will be sustainable. And it's far beyond anything that's happening in the West. You know, these the brightest people in Paris, London, and Washington aren't working on building an ecological civilization, but they are in China. And it's my great hope that they get it right because we need it. And the torch has really passed from the United States to Europe to uh, to China now in terms of being leaders uh, on the environment. That's a really inspiring story and something which I think is not well known, at least here. And it reminds me of something that you write, which I found uh, resonated with me and resonates for our situation in Australia which is that you said we need a positive vision. And you say, I use the word vision consciously to suggest something beyond the rational and that uh, we need to move beyond rational argument to enable these changes to take place for behaviour to change. We need a bigger picture idea of where we're going or a story in order to create movement and certainly not be uh, driven by anger, as you also say, but to gain energy from it, uh, but not be consumed by it. Could you share a bit more about that particular idea of having a vision and it being a positive one? Mm, So... As an environmentalist, you know, much of my life, uh, I was very, very angry about what was happening to um, people's health, to the environment, um, and to the future that was being stolen from our children. And um, that's very understandable. And all the environmentalists that I knew were also angry, and that's what motivated them. Their love of the planet motivated them, uh, and their anger at what um, what was happening. I I once did a research project in which I interviewed about 100 uh, environmental activists, and every one of them, you know, was um, was angry in that way. And uh, at the same time, anger really is uh, is exhausting. So uh, if you want to be sustainable yourself, you need to understand the roots of the anger, and uh, they're quite reasonable. But then you need to be able to move beyond it, because what we need is a positive vision, as you're saying. And what we work at at Client Earth all the time is a uh, pragmatic and positive solutions to what look like intractable problems. And you can't have a positive solution. You can't move into that solution space if you're angry. You know, anger is a, is a different thing. Anger is a fight mode. And you need to be able to come up with creative solutions. Uh, so you need to move beyond it. And anger doesn't take you to convincing people to move together in, into the future. People uh, do need a story. I mean, I I sometimes think that when Aristotle, uh, to go back to philosophy, when Aristotle called us the rational animal, 
uh, he was really missing the point because we're really the storytelling animal. You know, it's it's story that motivates things. And when I was in Australia, um, the fairly limited contact with the uh, the wonderful Aboriginal uh, stories were very deep. And every culture has its stories. And the story our culture has come up with, you might call it neoliberal capitalism, um, in which we're all assigned the role of consumers, is a very is a very bleak and demotivating story, which contributes to uh, the destruction of the environment that we see around us. It's not a way to move into the future. And if we come up with uh, the right story, and I hope ecological civilization may be it, then people are motivated by by hope and a positive direction. And then you can see, oh, of course, of course we can get there. Of course we can move away from using coal and decarbonize our electricity system. You know, of course we can do whatever is necessary to get there because the future looks beautiful. Now, one of the things that is really disappointing about uh, Trump becoming president is you know, America was in pretty good shape other than, I mean, there are a lot of problems. Guns is a problem. Huge disparity in wealth is a problem. It wasn't without problems. But um, when he came in saying it was all terrible, wrong. But if it's all terrible and you make people angry, 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 you can also control them, which is what he's been working on. But if you have instead hope as a motivator and a positive vision to give you a direction to the future, then you have a very different world. And that's the world we can co-create. And that's what excites me. It is really exciting for me too, because here, and I'm sure it happens elsewhere, the environment is seen as some kind of separate category when it comes to policymaking and to political visions in particular. And it rarely becomes an election topic of debate at all. Whereas in the book, you say that environmental problems are human problems and they arise from our conduct. And with a vision like that, clearly creating an ecological civilization requires us to have the environment or an environmental lens on every policy that we are creating mm. and, and the vision that we construct. So to me, I think that's a really important contribution that you're making. The environment isn't some kind of separate portfolio or thing that we sometimes need to care about because it's just the right thing to do. It is intrinsically tied to us. Absolutely. And to uh, every, everything we do uh, is part of the environment. We are part of the environment. And unless we respect it through the policies uh, we create, through the laws we create, and through all of our activities, uh, we get the kind of problems that we're, we're living with and, and need to change. Now, this has actually been recognized, interestingly, uh, in the, um, the treaty that forms the basis of the European Union. And it's called the integration principle, which is not a very sexy way to talk about it. But the, uh, the idea is that um, the environment uh, needs to be integrated into every policy-making role across the entire spectrum. And that's the requirement of the European Treaty, but it hasn't actually worked. Um, it was understood, but it hasn't been put into practice. And the best hope, I think, we have for seeing the economy and uh, agricultural policy and so on redesigned with the idea that it must fit within the sustainable limits uh, of the local and global ecosystem is really what the Chinese are doing now because uh, we have a lot of the information we need uh, to do this, but the experiments have been few uh, and the experiment is starting in China. 
And that's going to be a great case study to follow. I want to just as a a couple of final topics, I'm a bit of a tree lover and I was interested to see that the philanthropist who has been so critical in this venture... Michael McIntosh is a major tree lover himself and uh, and that you said to this day he admits uh, he's more affected by the way we treat trees than the way we treat people and I was um, really yeah. interested in that because I'm somewhat the same. I've been a little bit obsessed <laughs> with trees here and native forests and, uh, and we have a big problem here with native forest logging and old growth forests and the endangered species that are now really threatened by logging constantly every day. And so I was interested in the case that you have been involved with uh, in Poland with the primeval forest there and its significance and how that case went and and what is happening now with that forest and the logging that's been occurring there. Mm, Yeah, I mean, the forests are really under threat uh, globally. And again, this is something that doesn't have to be happening. Uh, It's um, greed and stupidity uh, that makes it happen. But in, in Europe, there's really only one great primeval forest left. You know, when I was in Tasmania, I realized that what was wonderful is to see how much is still left and how much is there to protect. Uh, and in other places in Australia, too, we were in Queensland. And it's remarkable how much there is that's worth fighting for uh, there. But this fight is going on everywhere. And in Poland, uh, as I say, there's really only one primeval forest left uh, on the European continent. And it's in Poland, and it's an amazing forest. It goes back to the Ice Age, and it's a mixture of uh, deciduous and uh, and conifers, and it has a whole range of, uh, of endangered species, including it's the only place on Earth where uh, forest bison still live. Uh, amazing. And um, a very right-wing government has gotten into Poland about a year and a half ago, and uh, they are they're a very scary group. I mean, they're out to uh, destroy democracy, uh, they tried to simply take over the entire court system um, and fire everybody who wasn't one of their cronies. And that was stopped, at least for now. But uh, right-wing governments uh, love to cut trees, and I, I don't understand the connection, but it's, it seems inevitable. And they're uh, logging in the, in the forest, and, uh, and it's perfectly illegal under um, all the applicable European laws. But uh, uh, the way they did it made them unchallengeable in the Polish courts. So we persuaded... Uh, the European Commission to uh, go to the European Court and get a cease and desist order against the government. And uh, that's rarely done, but they did it. And uh, that order was gained a few weeks ago. And remarkably, the Polish government has refused to obey it. This is the first time that any European government has ever refused to uh, obey an injunction from the European Court. So Poland is basically going to war with Europe over their right to illegally cut down a primeval forest. You know, imagine that. So uh, we then said to Europe, uh, to the European Commission, please go back to the European Court and ask the court for enormous penalties, which you can do, uh, against Poland. And they have done that. Uh, and Poland has about another week uh, to respond. But if they, uh, if they fail to comply and the court imposes the penalties, which I think they will do simply to, uh, they need to, uh, in order to protect their own authority, really, they have then the capacity to deduct those uh, penalties, which could be hundreds and hundreds of millions, from the uh, money that flows from Europe into Poland. So when it begins to hit them in the pocketbook, they'll wind up paying far more for every tree they cut than they get by illegally cutting them. Then they may stop. 
But that's the sort of uh, thing you need to engineer if you want to, in, in those circumstances, if you want to protect a forest. So without the ability to understand what the law was and to persuade Europe that it needed to act, which it rarely does, you know, there would have been no hope of protecting the forest. And uh, now there's quite a lot of hope, I think. That's true. I mean, that does seem like a very effective penalty, especially because you have that deduction method. You don't have to wait for Poland to decide to pay the EU the penalty. Mm. How large is the penalty that's been proposed? Well, we don't know yet. I mean, the court would determine the penalty, but uh, the law allows uh, the penalty to be in the hundreds of millions of euros uh, because it can roll over from day to day to day to day to day to day until it's paid or in this case, until they give it time, pull in time to comply. And if they don't, then they can terminate the calculation. Uh, but it will be potentially enormously high. I just want to now look finally at your firm, Client Earth, and how it fits within the legal profession itself over there, because I know you've won quite a few awards, particularly through the Financial Times, and very recently, I believe, only in the last week, um, you've won a couple. And I just want to understand whether your firm is now placed among other major law firms that may not necessarily have the same model as yours, but it, it is seen as a significantly effective and, and highly important important uh, firm among the other more traditional commercial firms? Yeah, this has been really important for uh, us because um, we are a charity. So we raise all of our money from, uh, from donors and um, we have departments like forests and fisheries and climate change. Commercial law firms, of course, have paying clients and uh, paying enormous fees. And they have departments like mergers and acquisitions and real estate and things like that. And um, it was it was a wonderful surprise when the Financial Times, in its annual review of law firms, uh, decided that we would be uh, listed among them. And then uh, just last week, as you were mentioning, they determined that in their calculation, uh, among all global law firms working in Europe, which is really all global law firms, uh, we were ranked uh, 35 uh, in the top 50. And that's really incredible for a, a relatively small charity. And it shows that the work that we do is innovative and really high quality. There's no doubt in my mind that the work we do is at the same level as the law firms. But it's also more interesting because uh, the work we do is uh, all of it is brand new. You know, uh, none of it's ever been done before. We have to invent the intellectual property around uh, whatever it is that we work on. And law firms tend to do, you know, the same thing over and over. So we have... Whenever we have a new opening, a tremendous number of really smart young people who want to come and join us and they say, well, this is what we want to do with our life and there's no other place in Europe uh, to do it other than client earth, can I join you? So we're training a whole new generation of people to, to think about how to use the law uh, to protect people and, and the world in this way. And in, in a way, that's uh, one of the most exciting things, or maybe the most exciting thing, that there will be this army of people who have these tools uh, and who want to use them for the good. That's a really um, wonderful and inspiring story and important development. It's amazing that you are you reached that 35 and congratulations on that. It's um, a huge testament to uh, what you've achieved so far in just 10 years. And just finally, in terms of your personal relationship to the environment and how it nourishes you, I know that you've been very much interested in poetry and meditation and you've mentioned philosophy. How have you been nourished by nature? and what kind of positive effect has it had on your life? 
Well, a very deeply positive one. And uh, I, I think every human being is uh, innately very deeply connected to the natural world. And you can see it. Any kid who is lucky enough to be in nature loves it, you know. And um, I think the same is true for every adult if they open up. And uh, it has been you know, uh, absolutely central to me. I, I've been studying Zen for 35 years or more. And um, after many years of study with a Japanese Zen master, uh, Martin, my husband, uh, met him for the first time and said, thank you for your teachings, which are so important to James. And um, the Zen master said, I'm not James's teacher. Nature is his teacher. And that's, that's really true. So when I was in Australia, uh, people asked me uh, why I was there. And uh, I said, well, we've just spent 10 days in the rainforest in Queensland. Uh, and you can see what I'm doing is I'm visiting my client. And uh, that's the way it feels for me, that there's a, a very deep dialogue that happens with the natural world whenever you're uh, in, in connection with it. And, uh, of course, that's best and easiest to feel when you're in a beautiful virgin uh, country. But it's also true in a suburban walk, or it's also true when I water the uh, carnivorous plant uh, in my kitchen. You know, it's uh, any connection like that is immediate and real, and it gets you out of the uh, the small space of uh, one's own ego and one's own problems to consider your connection with the rest of everything, because who we are, of course, is not just uh, what we see uh, as the limits of our skin, but is our interconnection with the entire world. It is so interactive, isn't it? I almost feel like sometimes I'm in conversation with nature when I'm walking around the bush or being surrounded by native birds and uh, they come up to you and, and you, have, you feel like you have a real connection, some kind of unspoken connection between each other. Absolutely. I am crazy about birds. And the, the birds in Australia were so wonderful. We saw together 281 species of birds. Most of them, of course, were new to us because uh, if you come from somewhere else, everything in Australia is completely wonderful, completely crazy and completely new. So all of these, uh, all of these wonderful creatures that we just saw again and again. And the most powerful, perhaps, uh, in terms of the um, experience of the bird was to, uh, to see a casuary uh, very close. And it took us several days to find one. So there was a quest element. And then uh, we eventually found a, a male casuary with his three chicks. And um, it was uh, deeply moving. And I, I really felt like that uh, connection was uh, also being with a teacher. You know, I learned a lot and I, I still think about him all the time. Thank you so much, James, uh, for opening up my mind and our minds to the different ways that we can approach nature and also approach activism and making change. Um, I think it's such a unique and innovative solution and certainly should be taken up more here if possible. And I really want to congratulate you on that. And I can't wait to follow all the exciting litigation that you will continue to pursue to protect your client. Thank you very much indeed. And that was my interview with founding CEO of Client Earth, James Thornton. He is the co-author of the book Client Earth with his husband, Martin Goodman, and uh, he's currently based in the UK, uh, in London. And James joined me via Skype from London, from his home there, and was so generous uh, with his stories and insights. And really, um, I truly mean it's very inspiring to hear his vision around uh, how we can make change, because often it feels like we're lacking um, many tools in uh, in the arsenal uh, of 
of activism and really uh, the law is one thing which seems inaccessible, uh, should be made more accessible and could be, uh, as as we've seen here, um, another way to protect the earth and James's client the earth. So I'm um, pretty jealous that, that that's his client. It seems like a pretty good gig as a lawyer and also good to see that uh, environmental philanthropy is all alive and well in, uh, in the UK and America. Yes, you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM and I am Amy Mullins and I've got uh, two actors in the studio with me and they're currently appearing in the Melbourne Theatre Company's production of Noel Coward's play Hay Fever and if you're unfamiliar with Noel Coward, he uh, was a British playwright. He was born in 1899 and one of his most famous or first famous plays was The Vortex uh, but this was also an early play of Noel Coward's and uh, some of his other um, famous plays are Blythe Spirit and Private Lives. So I have with me now uh, Imogen Sage and Gareth Davies and they're here with me to discuss the play. Hello. Hello. Sure. Hello. How are you? <laughs> hey, good, good. How are you guys? Good, apart from the hay fever that I picked up this morning. Isn't it ironic? Yeah, we were just Very. discussing... Well, um, you're you're looking fabulous for Thank hay fever, you. the play <laughs> and the condition, Thanks. and uh, and I mean this is pretty exciting. Is it a bit of a dream gig to be able to play to perform in in Noel Coward play such as this? Yeah, I think it's um, especially a dream because it's just well, it's just happens to be a great team of people that we're working with, and um, all the actors are really lovely, and it's just nice to have fun with a company and not have any horrible people that you're working with. Not that that's usually the case. No, but sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's great. But also no one writes plays like this anymore or kind of since or before it really, do you know mm. what I mean? It's, it's a very particular muck, muscle you have to flex with Noel Coward and one that you don't really get the chance to. I know that... Especially in Australia. Right? Especially in Australia, yeah. Yeah. Probably more so in the UK. But um, it's so it's so it's kind of hard like it was really mm. hard when we started yeah because we hadn't well i hadn't had to do anything like this before and i know a lot of the other cast hadn't had to do anything yeah. like it before yeah. and you assume you, you kind of assume that it's going to be like just a breeze because it's so simple it's just kind of a play about humanity in its kind of sweet daily life in a way you yeah know. it's domestic in a way and yeah but when you actually get into the text, it's it's really difficult to make that um, seem easy. But you know, it, and, there's a lot going on, and not just. And you can feel it in the audience as well when an audience comes in. It's actually a play that doesn't have many witty one-liners. It doesn't have pithy one-liners. And you can feel an audience even when they come and going, oh, it's Noel Coward, it'll be pithy one-liners delivered mm. for the sake of the audience. With a da-da-da. Yeah, but, <laughs> but they don't exist. It's, it's, no. it's kind of almost Seinfeld in a way. It's like yeah. dialogue, like really good dialogue yeah. as opposed to And it's so much of what's happening in between the lines to, you know, the tension between people, um, in between these strange lines that are like... Um, oh really you know or, or so do I like just these things that are nothing without what's going on yeah, in the situation and that would require a lot of discovery during that you know 
formative stages with the director and the other cast about, yeah. you know, bringing the text to life because often it's not obvious just mm. from reading the text that some of these things are happening underneath the surface and how do you represent it. Yeah. And I, I want to read um, a quote from Noel Coward on Hay Fever because this is really um, a great summary of what you're saying about this play. He said, Hay Fever is considered by many to be my best comedy and far and away one of the most difficult plays to perform that I've ever encountered. To begin with, it has no plot at all and remarkably little action. Its general effectiveness therefore depends upon expert technique from each and every member of the cast. The press naturally and inevitably described it as thin, tenuous and trivial because those are their stock phrases for anything later in date and lighter in texture than mm. the way of the world. So mm. he was basically saying it's so tough because mm-hmm. there is no clear narrative arc um beginning middle and end there is a little bit but a lot of it is reliant upon these great interactions between many characters at the same Mm -hmm. time not just two Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i think that was what struck me uh, when i came in not just the beautiful and elaborate set which is delightful Mm. to kind of you know really um, get you straight into that time period but it also really was the great intensity of which you as actors need to be um the whole time and it's a pretty long play too so you guys are doing an amazing job for sure because even though um some things might seem quite trivial like um us all having a cup of tea together that that has to be such a heightened extreme intense situation that's kind of i guess where the comedy is is like these things that are quite british that we're all really struggling to achieve yeah yeah and that and i think when i first kind of um, was asked if I wanted to do the play and stuff and I was thought Noel Cowden I had something in my head about how polite it was or how polite this era of play playwriting was and then once I read into it a bit more I realized that it was wasn't polite it was a skewering of politeness mm. everything that I kind of loathe about that era of, poli- of of polite society so did Noel Coward and it's not Jane Austen it is it's it not is Downton Abbey. it is no. destroying Jane Austen mm. it is so brutal in that uh and i think it's interesting that the word trivial is used there i think that's a really good word of just how trivial this life is just how trivial these lifestyles of these people are and it's i mean the basic plot is a family all invite uh a lover to spend the weekend with them and they all swap lovers (laughs) which is quite kind of scandalous even now yeah do you know what i mean but also very very relatable things like that happen all the time in you know, especially Gareth's With my life. family, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And let's discover that a bit more. <laughs> well, it, let's... We can't really give too... Well, it won't be... It won't be possible to give much away because, as we said, the plot isn't necessarily the key focus of this play. So let's kind of talk a bit about your characters and, and the other characters in this play. So there's the Bliss family, Gareth playing Simon, Imogen, you're playing Sorrel, and your brother and sister. Uh, we open um, the play with you guys, and it's hilarious. Uh, and you're being a, a very... Um, 
it's like abstract expressionist art, I think, Simon. And yeah, that's what he's going for. Almost a bit <laughs> dandy-esque uh, yeah. in the way that you're behaving and then, Sorrel, you're reading out this hideous poem by one of your friends. Uh, and so we start off with, you know, entering into society life and we get introduced to your parents, uh, Judith and David and uh, Marina Pryor's playing Judith. Uh, and so we see just the kind of, as you say, triviality of uh, the rich upper class life and the kinds of dilemmas that you all have and, um, you know, fancies and mm. just, you know, that that it could be such a big deal to have so many guests in a weekend and everyone's getting in a flap about that. And, and everyone's, well, oh, I'll give it away. No. Everyone's everyone's decided that they're going to stay. Their guest is going to stay in the same room. Yes, the Japanese room. Yes, yeah, mm. which sounds a bit scary. Which, well, it sounds <laughs> kind of trivial as well, but yeah. that's kind of another. Yeah. That's the humour. Yeah, and the humour of um, and yeah, that's right. That's how it starts. And and I think there's a bit of joy for the audience in realizing that the guests are just toys that the family use to play with each other. Mm. And we all invite a guest knowing that the rest of the family is going to hate hate them. Mm. It's very clearly, I, I wonder, I wish I'd done more research on it, but I want to, it's very Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, the Get the Guests game in that, where they, um, and it must have been a precursor to, he must have been really inspired. He was really definitely inspired. inspired by it. It's yeah. so similar. Because it's, again, it's a very intelligent family yeah. um, in one way or another, a, or a restlessly intelligent family inviting simple people who are good at this game of society who fit perfectly in the game of society inviting them in and just kind of being brutal with them and yeah. shocking them in the way that and this I, family doesn't play I the game i think quite often it, um in in film and theater it's the other way around it's you know quite often the outsider comes to the normal family and feels like an outsider and can't fit in and i think he's subverting that probably for enjoyment because he's an outsider um, or he was, yeah, yeah. So celebrate. It's 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 although it's criticizing that um, that bohemian upper class lifestyle. It's also definitely celebrating it. I I think. Um, yeah, there's a, it's certainly indulgent. Yeah, <laughs> and we and I think the audience enjoys to indulging in it. Yeah, um, and you know, and having an just it's a bit of escapism i guess to have a life of such folly mm. and fun and you know manipulation um and that this is what they're preoccupied by and and enjoy doing um without i mean there isn't there doesn't appear to be a lot of malice in it it's just that that's just how they are yeah and i think there is joy and again it's the same as who's afraid of virginia wolf in some ways there is joy in watching people who love each other destroy each other that's there's kind of a lot more joy in that and, and interest in that than watching people who love each other destroy each other. Mm. The more you love each other, the more you have the ability to to hate each other yeah, as well. That they're they're so close and then they can change instantly. You know, you can for one moment Simon and Sorrel are sitting on the couch laughing together and then the next they're kind of beating each other up, you know. Yes. Well, literally. <laughs> not 
no, wait, <laughs> not literally. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having a bit of a tiff. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> a verbal tiff more than mm. a physical tiff. Yeah. Um, but I, I, we were mentioning off air, um, one of the things that I really noticed was uh, just how physical this comedy is and how um, present you are physically and your bodies um, during this play. And that's one of the things, as you say, Noel Coward's known for, you know, sharp, satirical, witty, fast-paced dialogue, but there's this whole other element underneath and the, but it's very visible and present when it's on stage is the physical aspect of comedy. How did you explore that and create the physicality of your characters and that uh, interaction on stage? I don't know. Um, uh, for me, it was kind of easy in a way, although it's, it's hard and takes a lot of energy. Um, he wrote it for himself. Noel Coward was originally Simon. He was gonna, he, he played it. Um, and the stage directions, because like you said, he's known for that dialogue, but the stage directions were all Simon rushes down the stairs, he clasps someone in his arms, he throws them on the thingy, he plonks on the couch. So very quickly for me, I realised that Noel Coward intended it to be someone who's brimming with life and a physical life as well. Um and then you just also because it's so heightened and everything's so fast, the dialogue is that the body naturally gets energy thrumming throughout it, and that needs some way to explode in various moments. I yeah, think. and there's just the the changes of thought are so quick, and your body just kind of goes with that. I guess I've seen productions of Noel Coward in England where it's less physical, um, and it's more very, quite kind of still. Sometimes it's a bit. Boring, I guess, like that. But it um, that you know more focused on just the, the the text and the kind of warring between people with the text. But yeah, we were just. I think it just kind of came intuitively. Yeah, the yeah. kind of playfulness. I think we yeah. all liked. I think. Yeah. yeah, and that's. I mean, a lot of the stage directions are like ridiculously detailed, and that's a rare thing. Sometimes in plays, is you don't get a heat amount of. Description Certainly not in Shakespeare, you get that much detail on the stage directions, but even in modern theatre, it's like kind of seen like as a no-no to give so much direction to actors as to mm. prescribe what you should be doing. But I think it is quite useful. It, it, yeah. it gives an insight into his mind and his intent because you could read a lot into where he was going with that. Mm. Definitely, particularly with the cigarettes. Mm. Um, and Lee, the director, who... Kind of came with a real understanding of what she wanted this Noel Coward play to be, and what she definitely didn't want this Noel Coward production to be. Um, she said early on that this is a play about lighting cigarettes. It's not a play about smoking cigarettes. It's not a play about putting cigarettes out. It's a play of lighting cigarettes. And there are a lot of, and that's one of the kind of main uh, stage directions is she lights a cigarette or he lights a cigarette. Mm. And that's such a great stage direction. It's such a loaded moment. It's not a pause. It's not a beat. But it is a, such a loaded moment. Um, and I think he's peppered, he's peppered loaded moments and little stage directions which, which describe a kind of charged thing between two people throughout it, which is really helpful. I think yeah. he really, because he, he was an actor, he, I think he really had a, a visual sense of how the play would come to life on a stage. And, and because, um, yeah, when you get it up on its feet, you really start seeing the humour comes out between people and, and just the kind of position we're all in and so I think he was very specific about that and um I think we've taken a lot of it haven't we we have taken a lot of like we've we've taken a lot of the cigarette smoking um actions and things sometimes you, you can choose to leave it 
as well. It's yeah. it's more there to to signify what what's kind of going on between people in those moments. Mm. And there isn't really a lot that's superfluous when it comes to Noel Coward. Although there is so much going on, it seems that he's been quite efficient in what he's put there. There's nothing that looks extraneous. And I was wondering, given um, that the play has two intervals, I mean, did you cut anything from the script? Because I thought it would be near impossible. (laughs) We cut nothing, I don't think. Yeah, nothing. Just maybe, just very few times when there was maybe something um, that was that maybe sounded a little bit more old-fashioned in its kind of rhythm because I guess Lee the director wanted it to although you know it's set on a fairly traditional um, kind of setting um, she wanted it to be a little bit more accessible to contemporary audiences so Mm. so we're not speaking in the same kind of heightened RP, you know, that clipped Noel Coward um, that they used to use. Mm, that's true. Yeah. And uh, and it is set in the countryside in England in this beautifully huge mansion uh, and we see, um, you know, <laughs> as you say, a whole range of lovers come in and out and get swapped around and it was kind of surprising who ended up with who <laughs> at the end. Uh, but it was really interesting to see... Um, Marina Pryor's character Judith who is playing you know the the actress who has retired and wants to come back to the stage and you know all of the drama that's in her character is great and it lends itself because she is an actor she's an actor playing an actress wanting to return to acting so I mean it just seems quite brilliant uh, and it means that you have that excuse to be quite theatrical in your um, you know characterizations without it looking uh, unrealistic. Mm. Yeah, I think that's also where that, what you're talking about, the physicality probably came from that permission of being allowed to be theatrical because it's kind of just a part of their life. It's just in their bodies, you know, Mm. in the same way that a lot of my actor friends are very theatrical (laughs) in the way that they express themselves and... Yeah, because the whole family, the Bliss family, they're all artistic in some form. Yeah, or trying to be. Yeah, um, <laughs> whether they're successful. Yeah, yeah. but this, this was a time when also everything was up for grabs. The play begins with um, some Gersh when, with Rhapsody in Blue, and this was, and which was in, written in the same year, and that utterly changed music forever, probably. Um, and this was a time when people were experimenting and the old forms of theatricality were kind of being questioned quite a lot. Mm. Um, and so this the family... The whole melodrama of that yeah, kind of era. And you're right, this family is artistic or, or trying to be at this time and that encompasses a range of different art forms and what that means to be an artist and what that means to be kind of this obsolete class because also this mm. class was becoming obsolete of the idle rich in some ways. Definitely. And the, it's challenging um, the moral codes of a pr- previous but still very recent era in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, and I thought that, you know, the contrast between the Bliss family and the guests that come in is couldn't be more stark. Mm. And one of those examples is the character of Sandy Tyrrell, who is a diplomat and uh, it's, you know, played very well by Drew Weston. Um, and just one, you know, massive contrast, I thought, um, in the characters. But also uh, it 
still is somewhat there. I think you look at um, a character like Sandy and you go, but it hasn't totally left Britain. It's still there in modern Britain today is that stiff upper lip and, you know, properness. All of the guests, I think, in some way represent uh, the sort of British society that Noel Coward loathed in a lot of ways, Um, which were, yeah, this, this, this kind of... Stiff, stiff up, upper lip, or the dreariness, or the politeness, the hiding what they're actually saying, um, and just how dull that was. And I think, and we've talked about it before, that Noel Coward actually loved this horrible family that these guests enter into. Mm-hmm. He loved their, um, the fact that they were so loose, so wild, that they were impolite, and that they didn't play society in the same way that the guests do. Yeah, impolite, however, quite. Um, not good natured, but there's. It's not even kindness. They just they. They're more real. Yeah. So there is a kind of profoundness or um, accessibility in them as well. Well, they seem to speak their minds. Kind of how much is, yeah. is the Bliss family holding back? There is a little bit, but it's. Yeah. They are in contrast, like much more blunt. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. But you kind of appreciate that, I think, because because you see the alternative is these people who, you know, are just such followers, whereas they're definitely or they're trying to be leaders. They're they're um yeah steering the ship, and they're kind of not hypocrites in the way that British society kind of that that very proper British society is, Mm. where um you can be polite but capable of great barbarous acts. But that doesn't mean... Do you yes. know what I mean? Whereas yeah. the blisses are kind of so loose, so impolite, but they're not hypocrites. No. And they're also... They, but, and they, but they can change in an instant, mm. in an honest way that the um, guests can't. I think. Yeah, because mm. you see the guests, you, you, you see as they come to the house um, and are affected by the family, that they either respond by being kind of seduced into it. It's, it's as though that they, they actually want to be one of the blisses themselves but they 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 don't have the language for it or they're kind of so repelled by it that they themselves become quite horrible ugly Ugly. yeah Yeah. so you see the true nature of them and what what they're kind of covering that's true i think from an audience perspective you are empathizing with the blisses which is really weird Mm. because you wouldn't think so because they're the bad we want to watch people just we want to watch people be unapologetically who they are Mm. you know and Mm. fearlessly mad and and celebrate that i think yeah, like I think right at the end, the the guests are funny and you go, oh, well, of course they're going to do what they do, which I won't say. But, um, you know, but in the end I still go, oh, but, you know, the family are all together and doing the same thing they were doing before and it's kind of like back to the start again. Yeah, yeah, yeah You know, yeah. you can Totally. imagine it happening all over again on another probably, weekend. Probably will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny though because you say that you probably side with the blisses more, but some people do say, "Oh, I, w- I wouldn't want to, you know, be a part of the family. <laughs> I just want to visit, but I don't want to." Yeah. So everyone has a different response, which kind of reflects a lot of of who we are. You know, mm. what's like, what side we want to be on. Mm. Yeah. yeah, how much we appreciate uh, sometimes oversharing potentially or authenticity yeah, <laughs> or yeah. both. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really fun and and like I mean it is 
in a different context. It's in that 1920s period. Mm. But I think there's so many themes that are really universal. As you said, it's a play about humanity. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it has its own special context, but mm. there are a lot of things that are very easily relatable mm. to people nowadays, particularly with those family dynamics. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. been a guest at someone's house and not felt that they belong or, you know, gone to a country where they feel like a, a total outsider and they don't know how to behave. And and yeah, again, I, when I read it, I just thought of Seinfeld, just how you watch Seinfeld and what's good about that is how real the conversations are and how observant it is. And he's exactly the same. And there's a scene and the entirety of the scene is a family trying to explain how to play a game yeah. and no one following it. And yeah. I have sat there seething <laughs> as my siblings and I all argue over the best way to explain a game before. And I just, when I read that, I thought it was mm. s- such utter genius. Mm. Um, yeah, and the relationship between um, uh, Judith and Sorrel, I, I really can connect to personally. But I think, um, yeah, those relationships between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and brothers and sisters are so universal and they will probably continue forever, that tension but also love. Yeah. And competition and, mm. um, yeah, which is why I think he's he's not um, become old, you know. I, I think some people think of Coward in that way, in that kind of old school way, but, um, yeah, he's so universal. He is. Mm. He has a wicked sense of humour, that's mm. for sure. Mm. And I think we should have more Noel Coward. So if there's any theatre makers listening, including more MTC people, please put another one on because mm. <laughs> I really enjoy it. Uh, preferably Private Lives, I would be very <laughs> excited about. Um, I want to tell everyone that they can go see the play that we've just been discussing and it's been extended, which is great because it's been such high demand. So it's going to be on, uh, I believe, till the 1st of November. Yeah. So that's really excellent. So you've got about two and a bit weeks to go. Um, and as I said, it's in the South Bank Theatre at the MTC, which is next to the Recital Centre and the VCA. Uh, and, uh, and I guess, yeah, head on down if you want to laugh, like a really mm. good nonstop laugh and a bit of escapism and, um, and some real sharp satire. Great. Thanks, uh, Imogen and Gareth, for joining me. It's been wonderful to chat with you and congratulations to you and your fellow ensemble members on a really excellent show. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. And that was Imogen Sage and Gareth Davies, two actors who are appearing in the Melbourne Theatre Company's production of Noel Coward's Hay Fever. Uh, Yes, I I did see it and it was so fun uh, and enjoyable and uh, you know because you're hearing the belly laughs from the audience. So definitely consider looking into that if it sounds like your cup of tea. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.